Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sasson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Justin Kuhn. Coach Kuhn is a GA sports performance coach at NDSU, where he works with the wrestling team and throwers. I first heard of Justin when I was a GA at St. Olaf College and performed a mock interview with him. I was very impressed with his answers and the way he went about thinking about the questions that we had for him, and I've stayed in touch ever since. Today, we talked about the life of a GA, how we go about sports performance for wrestling, and climbing your Everest. I really enjoyed this conversation because it was another young coach that has to figure out how to lead people that may be older than him or just how to lead without the huge credentials and age behind him. And I really enjoy that aspect of coaching and trying to find a way to get buy-in, not based off your background, but buy-in based off actual belief in who you are as a human. So I really enjoyed this podcast and just listening to, I really hope some of the young strength conditioning coaches, some of the young coaches that are trying to get into the field can listen to Justin's message about how he went about getting into the life of a GA and what that all entails. Hopefully you guys got something out of this podcast. And if you did, it would would mean a lot to the podcast. And I say it every week, but if you guys could rate it and leave a review, the ratings and reviews are kind of what fuels this podcast and really pushes it forward to allow us to get the guests that we want to get on this podcast, allow us to get the sponsors that we want on this podcast and continue to push everything forward. Thank you guys for listening. All right, well, Justin, it's awesome to have you on the podcast today. Appreciate you having me on. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got into the world of sports performance and where you're at now? Yeah. So uh, originally I'm from Aurora, Illinois, which is Western suburb of Chicago, about 45 minutes from the city. Um, growing up, both my parents were college athletes. Uh, my dad actually won a division three national championship in basketball and my mom is doing Ironmans to this day. So pretty, uh, pretty phenomenal athletes on both sides. So kind of gone to sports early, um, did a little bit of everything. And then around fifth or sixth grade, got into basketball. And then around that time is when I started dabbling in sports performance environments in terms of just my training. I definitely wasn't the most consistent and it, looking back on it, it definitely hurt me. Um, and then kind of going through high school, continue to play basketball. Um, after that senior year was done, I had trained to walk on, I did my undergrad at Illinois state and kind of trained to walk on just, you know, see what I could do. Ended up having a pretty bad leg injury two weeks out from tryouts and, um, tried to bounce back, retrain for next year, stop being fun and started to just focus more on my studies. And so did my degree in exercise science, um, at ISU and was convinced I wanted to be a basketball coach pretty much all the way up through my final semester. Uh, and then that final semester I did my volunteer internship at the university of Iowa with their Olympic sport programs. And that was kind of my first real exposure to a collegiate strength and conditioning environment. And that's where the interest really stemmed from. And then from there, um, spent when I graduated that May, came back home and spent time actually working at the place I trained at growing up, which is uh, acceleration Naperville. Um, went and worked there for a couple months, helped out with their college group for the summer. And then also just with some general population training. And then two months later, going into August, um, someone had reached out to me about an opening at North Dakota state. I applied on a Tuesday. The director called me 25 minutes after I applied, which is like contrary to every, strength and conditioning application I've ever done. Usually email them and you hear back two, three days later. Uh, and then had about four or five phone calls over the next 48 hours. They told me they needed me to move out there by that next week and offered me the job on a Thursday. And I moved up there on Monday, spent the year there as a paid intern actually. Um, and so that kind of was a lot of, it was a good transition role for me in terms of bridging the gap from being a volunteer intern. Um, and then wanted to take that next step towards being a GA, um, had some roles with, uh, running the social media accounts, which I thought was good for me just in terms of getting to work with video editing, uh, making infographics, putting stuff out on social media. Cause that started to be where the industry shifting is a lot more online, um, and promoting your athletes. And so I thought that was a valuable experience. And then as I was doing the job search for a graduate assistant position this past or last January, um, we had an assistant football strength coach that took a job elsewhere that was helping out with wrestling and throwers on the Olympic side. 
And after he left, our Olympic sport director was able to get us a second graduate assistant. Previously, we only had one and then offered me that spot, which would oversee wrestling and throwers. And that's kind of what got me into my current spot where I am at today, uh, finishing up my first full year as a GA this upcoming May. And, uh, we'll, we'll see whatever that entails with this whole uh, coronavirus going on. <laughs> yeah. And now we're, now we're figuring it out as we go. I love it. So when you, you were set on being that basketball coach, what, and you took that internship to be the, the assistant strength coach or the, um, intern strength coach, what, why did you do that? Was it just to fulfill like an exercise science thing or did you have like, um, just like, did you just wanted to see the other side of training for basketball? Like what was that interest there? So I wanted to part of it. I mean, the bigger part is definitely the graduate requirement in terms of you had to do some type of kinesiology related setting. Um, and there's, so like, there's no real basketball coaching internships, at least in the capacity that would provide academic credit. Um, so it was partially that. And then also, um, just in conversations with my, with my brother, who's a strength coach out at William and Mary, he kind of told me, you know, even if I wanted to, he wanted me to be a strength coach, I think, but even while still being a sport coach, he thought it'd be good for me to dip my foot in that other side. Um, he's like, so if you do become a, strength, a sport coach, it at least gives you a good understanding of what a strength coach does and allows me to kind of bridge that gap. Um, so it's kind of one of those things where either path I go down, it's going to be a beneficial experience. And I mean, yeah, once I got into it, it was obviously a big career change for me in terms of like, I was not a morning person growing up. Like my mom always lectured me like one day I'm going to get up early for my job. And I was like, no, I'm not going to work a job where I got to do that. Became a strength coach and that's all a laughing matter now. But, uh, yeah. So I, you know, started adjusting to the, you know, 5am to 6, 7pm days, um, what that entailed and, you know, really learning to enjoy getting to be around athletes. Cause my thing was always, I never want to sit behind a desk. Um, I love being on my feet. I love communicating, um, and grew to love the weight room. As I obviously said earlier, I didn't initially love it. Um, but then got really into training during college. And I think just being able to be in that environment day in, day out and work with athletes, um, just really appealed to me. And I realized I stopped caring about the capacity I did it within, whether that was a coach or a strength coach, um, and more just that I was doing it. And so stuck with that role and realized I wanted to continue it into something beyond just that internship experience. And I'm interested in the, the kind of transition period for, for you when you went from that volunteer to the paid to the GA, what kind of were those steps for you? Maybe it was personally, maybe it was as a coach of like things you were learning along the way to allow yourself to make those steps. Yeah. So for me, honestly, the biggest things were when I left my Iowa experience, um, the coaches I worked with there, they told me they believed I was ready for a graduate assistant position, but I really didn't feel comfortable yet. Um, again, that was my first exposure to like a formal weight room setting. We, my high school was new the one I went through. So we had no formal strength and conditioning program. I think we lifted as a basketball team. I want to say there's maybe like two sessions I remember going to throughout my four years there. And I just felt after leaving that Iowa experience, I wasn't ready to not only program for a team, but also be able to run a team, be able to stand in front of a room, you know, command their attention, take a team through a lift. Cause you don't really learn that during your undergraduate experience. And I'd argue that's a lot more important than whether you do three by six or three by five or, you know, cause you realize that the program you put down on paper only matters so much if you can't run it, if you can't hold kids to it. Um, and so that I kind of use those experiences of, one, the one in the private sector was awesome because that was an environment um, at acceleration. That was an environment I grew up in. I knew the guys there and they had full confidence in me. I think that kind of helped just being somewhere familiar, allowed me to develop my coaching personality and my style. And then as I transitioned into that paid intern role and eventually the GA role, I think for me, the biggest things were just getting opportunities to coach. A lot of the learning how to be a strength coach and learn how to work your way through the ranks is you just need experience. You need to make mistakes. You need to screw up. You need to learn what's right, what's wrong and start to fit things into your style and what ultimately you're going to do as a coach going forward. And so I think for me, you know, it was one learning to own up to my mistakes. Um, can think of countless times during the fall, my first fall here as a paid intern, like I messed up and I'm fortunate to work for the guys that work for um, our director, Jason Miller, and then our assistant, Adam Mead, two of like the best guys hands down I've ever worked with um, just as humans. And the types of guy, when you mess up, you own up to it. They're not the kind of, you know, berate you, belittle you, tear you down. Like they're very constructive in their criticism and helping you grow from it. And they kind of give you that 
perspective that they know they were once in your shoes and they didn't act like they were these people that have never made mistakes. have just crushed it every step along the way. Um, and so having that made me feel a lot more comfortable to be myself and learn to like not push the boundaries in a bad way, but start to push out of my own comfortability zone. Um, and then from there, I guess I'd done a good enough job when, where, when that second GA spot was opened up, uh, Jason felt comfortable enough giving it to me and, uh, trusting that I would hopefully do a good job with it. Cause there was two programs that had in years past been just run by football's assistant strength coach. Um, so it was new to have those sports with us. I mean, so far it's been, for me, it's been an enjoyable transition, just a lot of learning, obviously with two new sports I've never done in my life. I, I love the, the point of learning how to command a room and basically a little bit of the art of coaching, because like you mm-hmm. said, it's not taught as a, as an undergrad student. And a lot of the, I talk, I work at uh, the university of St. Thomas. So I have a lot of students coming up at, that are in the exercise science program asking like, what should I do right now? And like you mentioned, it's, it's going to coach. Like you can learn everything about the X's and O's and the three sets of six or five by five or whatever you want to write about. But if you have never coached before, like none of that matters. And a lot of people are waiting for that perfect internship. And I'm like, just get yourself exposure to coaching whoever will allow you to coach them at this point. Yeah. Find a private sector, find a, you know, obviously if you want to go collegiate, I would stay, try and go towards a collegiate environment just because it is, you know, having been in both the private sector and collegiate sector, it's far different just in terms of, you know, how many athletes you have having them all be on one team versus, you know, you might have, if you're in a private sector, you might have eight different athletes, eight different colleges, eight different sports. And so it's different in that dynamic. But yeah, I mean, you can, you know, you talked about it. It's the experience. It's the fact that, you know, if you read, you can read Brett Bartholomew's The Art of Coaching, but reading it does not ensure that you're now a masterful coach. And again, the really only way to do it is you have to put yourself in the fire, get burned a couple of times and ultimately learn because it's just a confidence you have to develop. And it's a belief in yourself and it's not arrogance or cockiness. It's just knowing that the program you put on paper, you can run it, you can run it well. Um, you can teach everything on there and then just making sure as you go through it, like have that same passion desire you want your athletes to have, like don't be monotonous with your reading and, you know, just going through the motions. If you want your athletes to give a damn about it, it's kind of on you to give a damn about it first. And I think they'll start to feel that it may be gradual. It might be somewhere like at first they think you're, you know, over enthusiastic or, you know, super critical with your details you pay attention to, but eventually they come around and start to really take pride in it. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned your, your coaching personality. And I think that that ties into it of, of having that enthusiasm towards it. But can you talk a little bit about how you went about developing your actual coaching personality? Because I think, I think that's important too, is you'll see again, I think it goes back to a lot of the young coaches where they'll have, they feel like they have everything figured out on paper, but then it's almost like the lack of maybe enthusiasm, the lack of being Mm -hmm. able to like give energy to people and just have that personality. And I'm not saying you have to be the raw, raw guy, but you should be able to have something to be able to give some energy. To yeah. Kids. Well, yeah. And I said, so I was going to say, I almost saw the flip side of it where everything you see on like social media is these strength coaches, just like bashing helmets with a guy or, you know, scream their heads off all this and that. And I knew from the get go that that wasn't me. I think initially that might've kind of put me off from the industry, just thinking like, Oh, is that what it takes? And I think that's where my exposure meant to, exposure to environments like Iowa, even the private sector. And then here at NDSU made me realize like, that's not what being a strength coach is about. And I think the first thing I had to do was realize I need to be genuine and authentic. Cause I know if if I tried to be one of those drill sergeant rah, rah coaches, it would sound like complete BS coming out of me. Just that's (laughs) like, that's not me. Like if you, if you know me, you're around me, like I'm social, I'm 99% of the time I'm in a good mood. Um, I like to have a good time. Even when we're training hard, like I still like to laugh, have fun. And that's mimicked in the way my groups train that I run. Um, just cause I don't believe training should be something you dread every day or something you feel like, you know, you're going through the military. Like, no, like we're, we're here to have fun. Like we're here to have a good time training hard and, you know, having fun are not mutually exclusive. And for me, it was kind of operating off of those principles and then allowing myself to, find my voice through that process. And so it was a lot of trial and errors, a lot of, you know, figuring out what I felt worked for me and what I felt worked for the athletes and per anything else, it's always an, it depends scenario of what team am I working with? What athletes do I have? What type of coaching do they best respond to? Um, 
and obviously staying true to my principles, but adapting it from there. Cause you know, if I got 30 wrestlers on my team, they probably all adapt differently to my coaching style. And if I try and critique one, the same way I critique another one guy might take it con- constructively. The other guy might take it as I'm putting them down. And so it's kind of just really getting to know the athletes you work with. And then from there becoming just cognizant of what works for them, what doesn't and adapting your styles around that. Yeah. It's just building relationships with them. I loved your, your point. Like it, uh, also with the, the training, it doesn't have to be like this, like kids should not dread coming to your room. No. Um, I, I, we had a podcast last week with Dan Casey, where he mentioned like his whole thing is stress times enjoyment plus recovery equals adaptation. And he's like, the biggest thing I can do is make them want to be there. Cause if they want to be there, their intent and everything is going to be so much higher. It's yeah. And that was when I took over wrestling, that was one of the big things I wanted to emphasize because they're kind of, you know, wrestling is a go, go, go sport. It is constantly moving, constantly interacting. Um, and their lifts are about 35, 40 minutes. And we go three to four times throughout the week, sometimes less if we're in season and travel schedules, um, permitting. But when we first kind of took over, there wasn't much talking. It wasn't much communication. It was very kind of quiet. Um, guys just went through the motions and, you know, as we started taking over and like, it was obviously something where maybe in hindsight, we could have gone about it a better way, but I don't regret what we did. Cause I still enjoy the spot we're at today. Um, and I think from the feedback they've given me, they do too, but started just encouraging them to be themselves, have some personalities. Like we started resting more between sets, which they hated at, at that point. I'm <laughs> sure they still hate it today. Um, but I was like, look, we're going to rest no matter what. So either we, you know, during that rest, either we talk, we enjoy ourselves, we crack jokes or we sit there in silence. I'm like, it makes no difference to me, but I'm like, this is something I know that matters in terms of, you know, if we're doing heavy work, 85, 90% of our one rep max, I'm not going to have you do your next set in a minute. Like that's not how this is going to work. And I think part of it was, you know, we also brought in, uh, three new coaches, um, which really helped kind of fuel the progress we were trying to make in just terms of making sure it transfers up on the mat, like the environment we create. Cause it's one thing if they're, you know, they're super excited on the mat, but they're low energy in the weight room or vice versa. Like it's not compatible. So they were really good about making sure we create that environment that kind of exists on both ends of the spectrum where guys are interacting with each other. They're hanging out off the mat, like getting to know each other, um, just learn to be more comfortable around each other. And I feel like that more than anything has helped progress us as a team, just in terms of what we're allowed to do in the weight room. Now, you know, I know if we put something new in, I don't have to worry that 12 guys aren't going to be paying attention or I'm going to have to repeat myself. Like now when we do things, I can throw it in. Guys are active. Guys are paying attention. Some guys even hold their teammates accountable to, you know, doing things right, making sure, you know, if we're doing squats or whatever, guys getting low enough or guys doing it the way we're supposed to be doing it. And that's where it becomes more fun on my end. Cause now I can focus a little less on trying to hold a standard and a little more on, you know, exploring what we can do, exploring ways for us to grow. And again, it's not a perfect science. Like you said, it's, you build your relationships and then you kind of push your way along. Sometimes you take steps in the wrong directions and we've had to backtrack, have had to own up to it. Um, that's just the reality of the process. But again, it's how you learn, it's how you grow. It's how you apply it to scenarios you go into down the road. And I'm I'm interested in how you, as a, when you were a paid intern and now as a GA, how you walk into a room with some of these athletes and get that. And I get it's building the relationships and maybe that is the answer, but get that trust and get that buy-in to be able to change that culture as a GA, as a young strength coach, as somebody that maybe you have an athlete. I've coached athletes myself that have been a year or two older than me. Like, how do you go about that process? For me, it was definitely, and again, when I took over as a GA for wrestling and throwers, those were two sports I had one never done myself and two never even watched on TV by accident. Like I had, I could not tell you what the scoring system was in wrestling. I could not tell you, you know, how far a good throw is and, you know, hammer disc weight. Like I could not tell you a single thing about those events. And so for me, the first thing was admitting them to that. So like one of the first uh, lifts I had with wrestling, I literally told them like, cause I had not worked with them up to that point. So it was kind of middle of their season. I was transitioning into that role. We had left our other GA had helped out with them. And so he kind of had the reins for the first few weeks, um, just to allow me to 
get acclimated, get to know the guys, um, which I think made a huge difference in that I didn't have to just completely take over right away. Um, but we tried to do everything we could where I would take most of the responsibility as early as I could. And, um, but yeah, just owning up to them. I'm like, Hey, I don't know anything about wrestling. I'm going to do my best to learn. I don't know anything about throwing. I'm going to do my best to learn. Um, and then being at their practices, being at competitions. I remember for me with my throwers group, um, which for them, their sport coach programs for them. And then I kind of oversee it and implement it in the weight room. And I remember they had their, uh, indoor conference championships at South Dakota state, which is like a two and a half, three hour drive away. And we had been hit by a snowstorm the night before. And I made the drive down there Saturday morning, um, to go watch their events, watch them throw. And that was actually the meet where, uh, Peyton Otterdahl, who, if you don't know him, uh, pretty, pretty good, pretty good thrower. That was the meet where he broke the like indoor collegiate all-time record. Um, but so again, to just see them throw, cause we don't get it, you know, we'll get one to two indoor meets early on. And then we don't get many outdoor uh, meets nearby. And I remember one of the throwers coming up to me on that following Monday or Tuesday, and he's a quieter guy. And he's just like, Hey, I really appreciate you being there. Like, you know, we don't always like see our strength coaches at this stuff. So like, I really appreciate, you know, you coming out and spending your day down there. And he's like, it was really cool. And just kind of like those little moments of guy, like your athletes realizing like, you don't just care about them when they enter your weight room doors and until they leave it, like it goes beyond that. Cause my thing is always, you know, you work with people who happen to be athletes, not athletes who happen to be people. And I think sometimes we get those two things mixed up. And so if I want a kid to trust me as an athlete, he's got to believe in what I'm about as a person. And so kind of, it's just, you know, figuring out what's your major, you got siblings, what do your parents do? Like, and again, that's where that time we had of resting in between like sets with my wrestling group. Sometimes I'd just be asking guys like, Hey, tell me something about you. I don't know. Or like pick what's the weirdest thing about you. You could tell me, um, to just kind of bring it out of them and like, and then reference it somewhere down the line. Don't have them tell you it, forget about it. And then, you know, never bring it up again. Like keep notes, do whatever you need to do to make sure you remember those little details. And, you know, as you go through time, build up that rapport, if you're doing things the right way, I think that buying comes naturally. Um, cause as I told the, these guys, when I took over, I'm like, I don't expect you to trust me and everything I'm about simply because I have the title and the position and I'm taking over. Um, you know what I do expect. And it's the same thing I'm going to give to you is a baseline of respect of believing you're capable, you're able to do this, um, and allow me to prove myself. But I'm like, in order to do that, we have to do things the way I want to do them. And I'm like, and I'll work with you guys, you know, I'll communicate, I'll ask for feedback, but ultimately I'm like, if you want me to prove my abilities, prove, you know, who I am as a strength coach, you've got to allow me to run this program the way I want to. And I was like, just give me your best effort. If it's not working, we'll revisit, we'll reevaluate. And, you know, as we've gone through time and guys have been subjectively telling me, you know, I feel faster, I feel stronger. I feel more explosive than I ever have kind of using that subjective feedback over anything else. Um, Cause the other day, a kid that feels strong, a kid that feels fast is in my opinion, just as good as a kid who does feel stronger fast. Cause even if I tell a kid, Oh, you're, lifting 20 pounds more, but he doesn't feel stronger. Is there going to be any benefit to it? Um, you know, we can get into rabbit holes of transfer and all that, but just at a baseline level, you know, I want kids who feel the benefits, um, see the benefits and kind of through that process, that's where kind of the buy-in comes from. Yeah. At, at, like you said, that's where the buy-in comes in because at the end of the day, you have to produce results. You can, you can be as good of a human as you want, but if we're not producing results in some way, and maybe it is just a belief factor, like this is the first time they've had a coach come to their meets. This is the first time they've had a coach that put that belief into them. And that, mm -hmm. that's to me, especially being an athlete myself, like I know how powerful that is. And I think a lot of times that's way more powerful than like you mentioned, getting 10 pounds on their squad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a million different ways to roam as we know. So it's like, there's only so many parts of the program that you can say are making a difference and kind of how you, I forgot, uh, I think you referenced Dan Casey and saying like stress times enjoyment. And cause again, we want an environment that's enjoyable because we know how, you know, big the mental piece is to it. And so if we do what we can to at least make a kid feel valued, make him feel like he's an important part of the process, he or she, and you know, that you care about them being there. I feel like anything you do in your program, like Casey said, is immediately amplified by that enjoyment factor. And, and another part that I like that you mentioned was, and it's a big ego is the enemy type thing is you, you tell them straight up, like 
this has a possibility of not working or at least not being the best program. But as long as you're open as a coach to being able to change and take that feedback and progress and grow that program, that adaptable adaptable program is going to be so much better than that perfect program that is written in stone and can't be changed. Yeah. Cause again, you have to, and this is one of the things I realized when taking over with wrestling is I started to do, and I'm fortunate that our other GA now wrestled in college um, at Northern state. And then he's also my roommate now. But so once he, uh, he took over this past August, uh, him and I were getting on the mats and he was kind of teaching me some stuff. Cause I was used to, you know, when I, when I followed my brother growing up, like if you get taken down, you want to go to your back so you can, you know, hit back, you don't go to your stomach, <laughs> but in wrestling, you go to your back, you kind of lose pretty quickly. Um, and so it's kind of, you know, learning some of those nuances with the sport, but then also getting a feel for what it feels like to wrestle. Um, and obviously within certain extents, you can only, you know, feel your athlete sports so much, but I feel like, you know, getting out there to practice or finding some way to, you know, feel what your athletes feel goes a long way. When you think about writing a program, think about putting something down, you know, you have to ask yourself, maybe this is feasible to me as a strength coach, because I don't have a sport I'm preparing for, but is this feasible for my athlete who had a two hour practice yesterday and then has to come in and lift the next morning. Um, and then that's also, again, we're asking your athletes for that feedback and some of them will give it to you. Um, and some will be honest and give you great feedback in it. I've told my guys, like, I'm always going to ask you, you know, what your thoughts are. It's going to drive our decision-making within the principles I want to adhere to. Um, some guys will just say, Oh, it's fine. It's good. It's good. And, you know, give you your, you know, just normal answer without putting much thought into it. Um, but for your athletes that are very intuitive and very kind of aware of their bodies and, you know, weekly training structures, you'd be surprised what type of information you get from them. If you kind of pry their brains and, you know, dig a little deeper, cause some of them are really insightful. And like, I've had athletes be like, I really like doing, you know, this movement, but when we put it on this day, it's tough. Cause we usually have a hard practice on this day, or, you know, we usually do these types of drills and it affects my ability to do that. And some of that stuff has really allowed me to gain a better perspective of where I put my exercises, not just relative to each other, but relative to the practices, um, and what they're doing on that end. And so that's honestly been for me, the biggest thing in learning how to grow from one program to the next is remembering that what I see and what they feel can not always have as much overlap as I'd like them to. And so that's where you need to kind of implore them, you know, what are you feeling? What's working? What's not? And you'll get some good answers. Yeah. I love the, I love the point of putting yourself in your athlete's shoes by actually playing their sport and doing their thing, especially if you haven't been in the sport itself. Michael Zwayfold talked about how he had a rock climber uh, and he's like, I've never rock climbed in my life. So I, I built a rock climbing thing and started rock climbing to figure out like, what is he going to feel? Cause I can look at, it, I can try and break down the movement as much as I want, but what does this actually feel like when I do it? Oh yeah. I mean, my neck was sore for about a week. The first time after rolling around with my, uh, my roommate, I was like, I was walking with like a forward head and like just trying to roll my neck around for the next week. Um, but I thought, you know, that was still, and obviously my threshold for tolerating someone pulling on my neck for an hour is a little bit different than a wrestler who's been doing it for 10, 12, 15 years. Um, but it's still all the same in that it's something I need to account for. So when you're, um, breaking down these sports other than putting yourself in the sport and trying to feel what it feels like, like what else are you doing to try and learn that sport itself and try to program for that sport and really get your understanding deeper of it? I mean, a lot of it is big from the observing piece in terms of you need to see what positions do your athletes get in? You know, what does it look like on the mat? I think for me, that was one of the toughest things with wrestling is, you know, if you look at your field sports, soccer, football, basketball, um, since it's not a combat sport to a certain extent, um, there's obviously still contact, but you're able to see positions that get in cause they're on two feet, you know, they're running around, they're jumping. It's stuff that is a little bit easier to see to the naked eye watching one match of wrestling. You will see your wrestler, your athlete's body contorted in so many different ways that you're just like, and that's where I kind of realized it, if you try and chase a rabbit hole, too far down of specificity and trying to mimic your sport in the weight room, you're just going to get, lost and you're going to end up doing stuff that, you know, isn't conducive to what you're actually trying to train. And so kind of, it was looking at the sport, feeling it out myself, and then spending a lot of time just, you know, looking up online, trying to find resources of what, what are other, you know, strength coaches for wrestling programs doing? Um, there's a great presentation on the strength coach network by Carmen bot. 
on some different conditioning protocols um, for grappling sports, just really outsourcing it to people that are a lot smarter than me and then figuring out how does it fit into what I do? Cause if there's one thing I've learned that kind of line between optimal and practical is a lot bigger than some people realize. And so there's a lot of ideas out there that might be great if you have the right environment, the right athletes, the right equipment, but copy and pasting it to your program isn't exactly the best way to go about it. And so for me, it's been, you know, figuring out where we can fit it in and if we need to fit it in, who knows if we're doing it right or wrong. My goal is always, you know, keep kids healthy, you know, never have injuries in the weight room and then just progress over time, build robust athletes and just reassess, retest every so often to make sure we're trending in the right direction. And, you know, I think for me, the challenge has been wrestling is one of those kind of sports that has a little bit less research on it relative to like football, rugby, soccer, um, that tends to have, you know, lots of research on it. Um, you know, GPS data, strength metrics, power metrics, all that. And for me, it's been trying to dig down some rabbit holes of finding grappling sports that are similar to wrestling. Maybe it's Greco, maybe it's freestyle, you know, maybe it's even MMA. Um, but just seeing, you know, what are some, you know, what are some things that have worked for those grappling athletes? Um, how does it fit into what my athletes need? And then, you know, where do we go from there? And in a sport of wrestling, what are you looking for? You, you almost like your pillars to like, okay, we, we are headed in the right direction here. I would say for me, there's a, and it's obviously the answer we all hate to give, but it's an, it depends. Um, just based on the weight class, the athletes style themselves, um, their build. So like one of the things that blew my mind when I took over the sport is we have a 141 pounder that is six foot two. And so you can probably visualize what exactly that looks like. Um, but so, you know, trying to, and their style of wrestling is a lot different, um, in terms of they might be more okay with, uh, you know, their opponent shooting in on them and then trying to just scramble with them, um, and, you know, work from those positions rather than initiating the offense more. It's a lot more predicated on their length and not so much. They're just brute power and force. And so their needs versus, you know, a heavyweight versus, you know, what your middleweights, your 157s, your 65s varies a lot. Um, kind of the biggest things I like to see is, you know, with all of our movements is learning for the, having them learn how to create that ability of stability and stiffness. And so, you know, whether it's, and that's taught through, you know, you know, your squatting, your deadlifting, everything you do, um, any core variations um, is learning how to stabilize your body in the positions at, you know, move weight. And, you know, it's one of those qualities I can't really quantify, but I look at our wrestlers who have had success and their ath- and their athletes in the weight room have a very good ability to hold their positions. Um, you know, as they go through different motions, go with different loading patterns, um, they have a very good ability to hold positions. And I think that's something I try and, you know, we try and drill home just, and that's just through good technique. And obviously an athlete doing a back squat and, you know, that inherently is not going to make him a better wrestler. But I think like anything else, it's the qualities that underpin it of, you know, being able to manipulate with a load against you, um, holding positions is kind of stuff that eventually, if assuming you have the tactical technical stuff covered on the mat will carry over. But yeah, in terms of, you know, a lot of what we do is just, you know, and with, especially with freshman athletes coming in is usually strength is massively lacking. And there's one thing I've learned is that strength can cover you for a long time. Um, before you get into more advanced methods, like a lot of times just getting stronger athletes will get more powerful, get more explosive. Um, you'll see increases in range of motion, assuming they're going through a full ROM, but that stuff kind of became our priority in terms of we're going to do things right. We're going to do things well, let's get a year of good solid train under our belt. You know, it was very simple in my opinion. And I think most people agree, but like we never did more than like three sets on any of our strength work or any of our power work but yet we saw guys numbers consistently going up them staying strong, even in season while guys are cutting weight, we saw minimal drop-offs and some guys even went up um, with their strength, which for me in a sport of wrestling, I posted on it earlier in the year, you know, the higher absolute strength we have broader range of, you know, repeatable sub maximal efforts we have. And so while I don't have a specific strength metric I'd strive for yet, I know that if we continue to keep guys strengths high from the preseason through the end season, um, that's at least ensuring that, you know, the efforts underneath that max strength are still able to be repeated versus if we drop off, you know, 25% or whatever, that's obviously a big drop, but 10, 15% even is still going to make that wrestling 
that much harder. Yeah. I love your, I love your point about the underpinning like foundation of what you can give your athletes and that's going to develop into their technical and tactical abilities on the, on the mat. And Andy Ryland talked about the very same thing about teaching that brace and teaching that flow and athletes that are able to balance between keeping their brace, which is keeping a postured position and not allowing their athlete to break that posture, which in wrestling, I mean, that's everything. If you keep a posture broken in wrestling, you're getting pinned and then balancing that flow. And his, his whole way of thinking about it is like, how can you break somebody's posture and how can you keep your posture? And this is for team sport athletes. This is how we yeah. talk about team sport athletes, but wrestling, I mean, this is that that's the entire sport of wrestling. Oh yeah. And that's where I've started. To, I actually got to meet him, uh, over winter break. Um, he came out to the Chicago area and got to meet him, chat with him. And like, I've started incorporating some of his bear crawl progressions and kind of exploring that just cause it is even with wrestlers who as a population probably have the highest movement competency I've seen in terms of just, you know, those guys are freaks with their body weight, the stuff they can do, the acrobatics, the tumbling they do, um, that just happens instinctually is really impressive. And, but then you put them in like a, a bear crawl and then combine it with a bird dog. And I got guys falling over left and right. And, um, and that was where I was kind of like, you know, this is one of those things that's so easy to overlook it, but like if they don't have an ability to, you know, be on one leg and one hand, hold their position, how are they going to be able to do it with a guy on top of them or a guy trying to pull them to the ground, trying to cut their elbows. Um, and so it's kind of one of those things and he's been really helpful to me just watching his stuff. Um, on strength coach network, his podcast with you and just conversations with him on, you know, that low hanging fruit of how important it is for us to control our own body weight before we look to manipulate someone else's. And even in a combat sport of wrestling where they've been doing it all their life, some of them still have a lot of struggling with the very simple movements of being in a crawling position. Yeah. And trying to, again, the, the, that's where they're almost, and this is where I think you mentioned it earlier is the, the football guys. When I, my football guys, I think their strength, they, they have higher levels of strength, lower level of body control. Whereas I think the wrestlers where what you're seeing and maybe, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, they have a high level of body control and maybe a really low level of strength and working on, I think this is where we can talk about working, finding an athletes, like what is their actual weakness? What do they excel at and what are they good at? And what do they like doing? And then what have they not worked on? Because what they haven't worked on is probably going to lead to the greatest adaptation with the lowest wear and tear on them. Yeah. So I'll be, I don't want to throw my guys on the bus. So we have some pretty, we have some strong guys on the team. Um, you know, we got quite a few guys that are squatting twice their body weight. Um, a couple guys that are benching, 1.5, 1.8 times the body weight. Um, without a doubt, the most impressive thing is their ability to do chin-ups. Um, yeah. with, you know, we, we tested them out preseason. Um, and then once near the end of the season with our development guys, but we have guys that'll do weighted chin-ups with, you know, 120 pounds of added weight. And it's like, I'm over here. Like that is just an unfat effort. And, for, and the, those are guys that weigh 145, 150 pounds. So I'm like, you're looking at 80% of their body weight. And they're taking that for a single, maybe a double of a full range chin up. And so it's like, there's no, and for me, that's the interesting part is there's guys that look, you see your guys and I'm sure you have as well players that if they just look at a barbell, they'll put two inches on their arms. Like they just seem to grow and hypertrophy. And, but then at the same time, I have these guys that are not the most built looking guys, but are pound for pound as strong as anybody else in the weight room. Um, and, you know, irrespective of weight class, it's kind of just been one of those things where like you gain a real appreciation for qualities that certain kids have and understand on top of, if you've ever done a wrestling practice, I think it's, you know, one of the most brutal practices just cause it's a full body fatigue. You're sweating, you're like constantly moving their ability to adapt and still get stronger and still, you know, grow from training to me has always been the most impressive thing. Um, just that they can show up consistently, put in work and, you know, the results they've gotten and that they've earned themselves to me are just awesome to see, but it's really helped open my eyes to the fact that their adaptive capacity is just off the charts. Um, but then also that I don't need to do more than I've already done in terms of, you know, whether it's how much we're doing or when we're doing it, if it was successful, like, and it helped achieve the goal we wanted to, I'm not going to suddenly push the envelope and try and do five, six sets of things next year. Cause if three sets is working, why do four, you know, why continue to push the envelope? Cause, I want to leave as much opportunity as possible for them to focus on practice, 
focus on becoming a better wrestler. Cause end of the day, like we said, they want to see results. They want to win. And if I'm doing too much on my end where it affects their ability to, you know, work on technique on the mat, and then they can't transfer it to competition. They start losing. Maybe I say, Oh, well, Hey, but their squat went up 15 pounds. It's like, yeah, well, he's Oh, and six on the year. So I mean, <laughs> but I'm like, his squat went up 15. Like it's, you know, it's one of those things where always keeping in perspective. And even when I'm seeing the results, not taking that as an invitation to, Oh, let's do more. Let's do more. We can get better results. Like be content with the progress. Um, especially in a grappling and weight cutting sport where there's so many other variables you got to consider when you program. Yeah. And keeping, like you said, the, the goal, the goal of winning on the mat, because that at the end of the day, like you mentioned that that squat doesn't matter, but you, you mentioned the weight cutting. That was a question that I had is, how, how do you go about that working with your athletes? And this is the only sport in college that has to deal with this, where they actually have to lose weight for their, mm -hmm. they don't all have to, but it, most have to cut or just maintain a weight rather than being able to get as big, strong or fast as possible. Yeah. And so for me, that's where, you know, using percentages is nice. Um, cause it's, it's easy. It puts a clear, concise number in your card. Um, but if I were to have every set be married out to a percentage with these guys, I would be, massively disappointed. And so for me, the big thing has been, it's been a learning process for them. And for me, in terms of how to teach it, um, is kind of educating them on, you know, RPE and reps and reserve, um, and understanding what that means. And so depending on the time of year we're in, you know, when's our next competition, um, where are we at within our micro and macro cycle? You know, I might say, Hey, today, you know, if we're squatting, you know, we got three sets of four, I'll put their first set at something that I know is doable. Like whether they're above weight at weight or, you know, whatever it is, like it's a set I know they can do. And then, you know, we might give them their next two open and say, Hey, by that last set, you should have two reps in the tank. Um, it should be about an eight out of 10. And, you know, there were some times we missed the mark, you know, guys went too heavy the guys didn't go heavy enough. Um, but over time guys started to learn and it makes them a lot more involved in their training because suddenly they have to think, um, you know, with our freshman athletes and guys who struggle to make the right choices, we might guide them, give them some ranges, um, based off their sets that we see, but having enough trust in my guys to know, Hey, if you're for whatever reason today, if you're not feeling great, if you just feel like if weights feel like it's 500 pounds on your back, you know, adjust accordingly, let's live to fight another day. Cause I'm like, at the end of the day, it's not about today. Like no one's going to, if you win nationals this year, no one's going to ask you, Hey, what did you squat on that one Tuesday? Like no one gives a damn. And, you know, through that process, I've seen guys just show tremendous growth. We had, um, our 133 pounder who won big 12s this year. I had him back in, uh, December. He had a double at 93% of his max. I'm just, we were working up some doubles, had some open sets, hit one at 93%. And that was unsolicited. It was his choice, but that's kind of, and there, I think two weeks prior to that, he did a triple and it was at maybe like 80%, something like that, you know, 80, 80 high seventies. And it was kind of just that <clears throat> teaching them to listen to their body, to adapt and to react. And then allowing them, you know, Hey, when you feel good, like, Hey, let's push today. Let's you know get something out of this. And they've started to gain a better understanding for what that looks like, which then for me ultimately allows me to trust them with their decision-making more. Um, Cause in anything I've read, um, you know, in legacy, the book about the all blacks, you know, one of the big points they drive home is, you know, you need to transfer some of your responsibility to your athletes um, and allow them to have some input, have some say. And I think the phrase they use is pass the ball. And, uh, and then there's another one leaders create leaders. But to me, that's one of the things that I've wanted to have instilled in them is that like, this is about you, you know, it's kind of your, your credo. It's not about me. It's never been about me. Like, you know, it's, I want it to be about them. And part of that being like, it can't just be me telling you your sets and reps and telling you your weights. It needs to be you saying, Hey, I hit this. I did this. This is how my body feels. Maybe I need to go down and wait. Maybe I need to go up. Like what am I feeling? And then allowing them to learn through that process. So that way by year four, I don't have to still be, you know, babying them, coddling them, trying to help them set weights. And then also for the rest of their life, like it, it teaches them just those, those values of, you know, listening to yourself, having a plan, having a process, um, not going off script just because suddenly you're like, Oh, I feel good today. But then we have five reps and you only hit two, you know, it's understanding that there's still a plan. There's still an end goal and communicating that end goal, um, is kind of another thing I thought was helpful, you know, telling guys when we came back in January, you know, we were starting at certain, we were starting at, I think like 
fours or something like that. And a lot of our strength work, I was like, Hey, we're doing this for a month. And then we're going to work all the way. We're going to test out right before spring break. Um, our last week of training, our end season was like, Hey, we're going to build towards this. I'm like, but if we hit our ceiling day one or, you know, week one, week two, it ruins that plan. I was like, so you guys stick with me through these nine, 10 weeks, we'll work our way there. That's what we're training towards. And had just awesome results with the guys in terms of, you know, especially with our development group, they're in there three, four times a week. And you know, those are guys that they don't see the mat, you know, Friday night, Saturday night, and they're just sitting there grinding away and they put their heads down, you know, we're disciplined, we're focused, and we had some really awesome results. I've been still putting them together from our testing week, just with all the travel from the coronavirus, putting us off plan a little bit, um, have been behind on that, but we had some really awesome results that I think make me feel a lot more comfortable about allowing them, giving them that responsibility and then trusting that they're going to take it. You know, it's not a smooth process right away, but kind of one of those things that you plant the seed in early and you know, it's going to struggle to grow at first, but eventually you water it enough. You take care of that idea enough. It's going to get to what you want it to be. And especially like in a weight cutting sport, there's just too many other variables that you can't tell a guy how he feels on a certain day. Um, you know, I'm sure you've seen, you ask any athlete in season, Oh, how do you feel? They're going to tell you they feel good because <clears throat> if they say they feel bad and their sport coach finds out they feel bad or something like that, you know, that's playing time, that's starting time. So they're always going to tell you, Oh, I feel good. I feel great. Um, and so I'll just say it offhand. I'll be like, Hey, if you're not feeling great today, maybe, you know, don't, don't go balls to the wall here, push yourself into a deeper hole and kind of let them take the wheel from there. Yeah. There's so, there's so many good points that you just mentioned there. One is as a coach starting to realize, and I think this again, goes back to putting your ego to the side, but realizing your job is to guide them on the path. You know, like your job is not to push them and pull them and make them this perfect path to go through your path. Like your job is to show them where we're going to go. Here's where we're starting. Here would be a good direction, but if we had to take a couple of detours, that that's going to be perfectly all right. But like, I'm not going to like, like you mentioned, I love how you related it to life. Like, at the end of these, like, these are your four years and it's going to prepare you for the rest of 40 years of your life. Like I'm not going to be there being able to have to pull you. And some, maybe sometimes I'm going to have to pull you. Maybe sometimes your boss is going to have to pull you in life, but like, it's, it's your life, you know, like we can't oh, yeah. sit there and live and, and do that for you. So I, I love that point. And the other point is that it, it makes your program like auto regulate itself. Like this is where like percentages have never really made sense to me because some days, like if you get up to a high training max, 70% will feel like a three RPE and you're like, Oh, I'm yeah. the man today. <laughs> and then some days that, that will feel like 800 pounds on your back yeah. and like, you're going to die at all moments and writing that 70%. And this is, I've never, I, I, I stopped wrestling in high school. Like I never wrestled in college. And so this is all from football where I'm not cutting weight. Like I'm able to eat as much as possible, recover as much as possible. And there's still days where if 70% is written on that sheet, some days it feels like 800 pounds. So now put your athlete who is in a calorie restricted mode under that bar. And you're just writing 70% on their sheet because 70% should be easy. Like that, that's not really how any of that works. (laughs) Yeah. And that was for me. And, you know, it's a testament to those guys because they come in every day and they, they absolutely crush it um, in terms of, you know, there's far less guys who have excuses now. You know, sometimes a guy might come and tell me, hey, like, this is bothering me. Or, hey, like, not feeling great today, whatever it is. And my, my thing is always, all right, let's just, you know, get into the bar, see how it feels, like warm up, see how it feels. And then sometimes they'll find themselves being like, oh, I feel a lot better. Um, and sometimes they won't. And so like your, your end of like, you know, 70% might feel like a three RPE or it might feel like 800 pounds. I had a uh, buddy of mine, uh, Ryan Gucci, who helped out the study that looked at, I want to say it was 80% of a one RM. I have to double check on what lifts, but they found that there was like an 18% variation um, either way in terms of what it felt like. So some days it might've felt like 98%. Some days it would have felt like 62%, but like you start to realize like how much of a especially as you get heavier, like there's such a neural component to lifting in terms of, you know, I think it's starting to gain a lot more traction out there, just the power of the central nervous system. But like if your athlete is just completely, you know, fried and torched from, you know, whether it's lifting practice, whatever it is, you can't expect their one RM one day to be their one RM the next day. Um, and if you're not adapting your training off of that and you're just expecting to be married to these percentages, cause Oh, on this day, three months ago, he hit this for a max. It's like, well, that was this day, three months ago. Like it's a good guiding point, but it's not where we're at as a team or as an individual right now. And we need to adjust accordingly. Otherwise 
you're either overtraining some athletes or you're undertraining others. Um, you know, our job is to make sure we're doing enough to elicit a stimulus, but not enough to where we're overtraining them or taking away from their sport. And so again, yeah, it's not a perfect science in my opinion or a perfect system. And I, there's changes I think I would make next year in terms of how soon I might um, allow athletes to choose their weights and certain days where I may want to be a little more, have a little more say in what they're doing. Um, but I think for the most part, guys have shown that growth and that maturity to be able to choose weights appropriately. Yeah. And I'm, I'm reading the book anti-fragile right now. And like what you were just talking about made me think about it is humans need that like random stimulus of stress to be able to grow. And you need to be able to balance that out with if there's no stress and it's not enough, then they're just going to waste away and not oh, yeah. rest to be who they are. And if it's too much, you're going to break them and break the organism. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's finding that balance of, you know, and depending on what type of monitoring technology you have, something like that, there's only a certain extent to which you can control those variables and, you know, know what's going on. And that's again, where, you know, what you see as a coach and what they feel as an athlete, you know, you need to understand how much overlap is there, if there's any overlap at all. Um, and if there is no overlap, you know, what do we need to do to find that common ground and make sure the training we're trying to do is getting the desired you know, response, the desired effect. Um, cause I think how you frame it to athletes and understanding the value of stress, um, both acutely and globally in terms of, you know, understand everything has an impact, you know, whether it's your girlfriend breaking up with you, your parents fighting, you have four tests that week or you go and max out on squats, like that's stress and your body's going to perceive it as stress. And so, you know, that's where having that awareness of, you know, I had a thrower come in and tell me he's got four tests that week. And then, you know, he tried out some of his percentages and they were just, you know, he was having a, a rough time with it. And so having to adapt. And that's just one of those things where like studying is not a, you know, a physically abusive activity in that you're not like throwing weights around or stuff like that, but it's still having an effect on his ability to lift weights. And, to, and for, as an athlete, that was an eye opening moment for him. Cause then he suddenly realized, Oh, like everything matters. And then kind of gained a better perspective of like how you manage and appreciate stress. And I think with wrestling, it's, it's no different. Um, there's a lot of stressors we know about for athletes. There's a lot of stressors we don't know about. We can't plan for the ones we know about and just ignore those other ones. Cause those other ones have just as much of an impact. Yeah. We talk about all the time, the, the other 22 hours that you spend by yourself or at class or like without the strength coach, it's like my that, 40 that. minutes does not matter. Exactly. None of that matters. If you're not taking care of that stress, the, the, the last, the last question for the sports performance realm. And this is something that I, I've, I've really liked to ask coaches recently is kind of what has been your biggest eye opener. Maybe it's the past year, maybe it's the past six months. Maybe it was something you found out last week, but what has been kind of your biggest eye opener for sports performance and training? You're like, Oh, like this, this is what I want to do going forward. I think honestly, the biggest realization for me has been like how little stimulus you need to push that meter with any quality you're trying to develop. Um, you know, kind of instead of going down that road of how much can I do with my athlete, like kind of more down the road of how little can I do and I'm sure I'm taking this from someone else, but how little can I do and still get the response I want? And the analogy I've heard, I think I want to say it was Kier when I'm flat and he might've stolen it from someone else, but it was kind of the idea of like a tube of toothpaste, you know, as an athlete's training and like, you'd rather like, sure you can squeeze right from the head of the toothpaste and you'll get something out. But then down the line, you got to work that much harder to force the rest of it up the, up the tube. Whereas if you just start with a small stimulus, squeeze on the very back corner of the tube of toothpaste, it's still going to come out. And then you don't got to work as hard going down the road. Um, so I think for me, that's my biggest thing is just realizing like how little you can do. Like we can do three sets for, you know, year round almost, you know, or approaching through an in season of six, seven, eight months and guys are still growing. Guys are still adapting. So it's like, why, why try and do more? Um, I feel like it's been my biggest realization. Cause when you talk about X's and O's of, you know, programming, you look at research studies that say, you know, this protocol is best. This protocol is best. You see German volume training, all the stuff that's out there, you know, that you may have done as a strength coach and it works for you, but then realizing like, just cause it worked doesn't mean it's necessary. And I think that's my thing is, you know, not trying to find out, you know, can I throw some of my athletes? Cause kind of, we talked about on the front end of this, like it's always fine until it's not fine. And as a strength coach, I'm not trying to find that point of where it's not fine. And so I'd rather, you know, do a little less than I would like to, or maybe the guys would like to, 
and have them complain about that, than have done too much. And suddenly we're down two starters for Friday night. You know, one of those is going to reflect poorly on me. The other one, the other one they'll forget about next week. That's uh, I, I, that probably has been also my biggest eye opener when I started to see people talk about, and I, I've heard of microdosing for a while, but really, and I think here is the one that opened it up for me as well, where he talks about you, you want to be able like the tube of toothpaste, like analogy, when he started talking about that, that was huge for me. I was like, that, that's mm-hmm. so right. Like you could still get responses. And now it's just coming back to yourself, like pulling yourself back as a coach. Like you don't have to throw the whole kitchen sink at them. Like you can just oh, give them yeah. something and it's going to work. And like, yeah, like you've mentioned probably three or four times, like you got to leave your ego out of it of like, Oh, I really want my kid. Like you can't have this infatuation with a number or a metric and push the kid towards it at all costs without realizing what you're sacrificing to get there. It's like, you need to be able to like take a step back and it's even, I've had to do it in my own training. And that's where I feel like it's helped me feel more credible when I do it with my athletes is doing a lot less on my own, um, with what I do, but then still seeing results. And I think when I do that, when I see the growth I can get and knowing that I'm doing what I'm asking of my athletes and not just pushing to failure every time or going too heavy, I think seeing the results there and knowing that it can still work without doing much kind of makes me for more comfortable running it with them rather than putting them through something that I can't feel I can't relate to, or I don't know for a fact if it works or not. Um, kind of that trial and error with myself allows me to better explain and adapt it to what they'll need as a team. Yeah. And keeping the, this is another thing that's big for me. And it just made me think of this is realizing like you have these athletes for four years and mm-hmm. something as I think a lot of straight coach and I for sure is starting out and I still struggle with like, <laughs> I want to get that, like I want these adults with these freshmen, like now, like you want to make them the best player. Like you want to yeah. give them everything now. And then realizing like, all right, they have four years here. Like how can we get them to progress all four years? And their eventual ceiling is much higher than if you had pushed them to that ceiling, their first or first or second year there. Oh yeah. And that's where <clears throat> I was fortunate this year with wrestling, all of our freshmen redshirted. So like that made my job a lot easier just because, uh, you know, none of the coaches are like, Oh, I need them ready in six weeks or, you know, we get from the time I get them, I th- we get nine weeks until that first uh, duel. And so like, I mean, if I have a kid who's never trained before nine weeks, like there's only so much you can throw at a kid in nine weeks and, uh, you know, without burying him. And so you know, I was fortunate in that scenario, but yeah, I mean, that's the, and I stress that when we have recruits come on campus and I talk to them, I was like, you know, and the parents, especially I noticed appreciate this. The kids have less of an appreciation because they just want to wrestle. They just want to train, whatever, but you know, telling the parents, like my goal is to not find out how strong I can make your kid in three weeks. My goal is to find out how strong and fast I can make him in four to five years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the analogy I was always told, um, from one of my mentors at acceleration, Mike Nicholas, and he stole it from a, uh, I want to say a power lifter, but, you know, if you put five pounds on a lift every month and you do that over a four year career, like you're putting 240 pounds on a lift, which I mean, obviously life isn't linear trains and linear, but like just that perspective of like, you put this micro like fraction of a weight on your total just once a month it's 240 pounds over the course of a four, four year career, 300 if you're five year and having that, you know, incremental perspective rather than thinking I need to do it all right now. I need to get as big and as strong as as fast as I can right now. Um, Cause again, I'm stealing from him again, but from Kiri, he's like, you know, it doesn't matter how hard you try. You can't have a baby faster than nine months. Yeah. You can't try hard and force it out in four and a half. And when we're talking adaptations and trying to get specific responses and training, again, you can't force the issue. Like it's the body's only going to adapt so fast. And usually if you try and force more on it, it's going to adapt the other way and start to break down. And that's where I feel like you you do a little less than you'd probably like to or need to leave the room for growth. And then understand you get more from that than trying to do the other end of the spectrum of going over the top and just burying your kids. Yeah. That that's, that's money. Let's transition into our rapid fire round. What are some of your favorite books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of? Uh, two books. And one of them is kind of sports performance related um, is peak performance. And that one is by Steve Magnus and Brad Stolberg. And then the second one that I got through a couple months ago was essentialism uh, by Greg McKeown. And that, that book was, I want to say it's like $15 on Amazon. 
like one of the best $15 I've ever spent in my life. Um, just the perspective that book provides you in terms of your day-to-day life habits, you don't realize you have and how to fix them and how to start just prioritizing yourself, um, and stop pulling yourself. And it's, you know, it's has a relationship to training in terms of do less, but better, you know, rather than trying to pull yourself in 500 directions and going nowhere, you pick one or two things you want to focus on and pull yourself in that direction and you actually make progress, but highly recommend essentialism. And then for the sport performance side, peak performance is a good one. Essentialism is now four for four for the last podcast. The last four podcasts, the last four people have uh, recommended essentialism. It's a great book. (laughs) That one's getting starred. All right. Next question. Who is a guest that you think we should have on that could provide a lot of value to listeners? In terms of one that's I've enjoyed and I don't even know how to get in contact with them, but uh, Robert Sapolsky, he wrote the uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers book and has a, uh, he has several lectures out there on YouTube. Uh, just a phenomenal dude in terms of understanding stress and how it impacts the body and how it all relates to everything you do day to day. Um, and then the other one I think that I really enjoyed hearing on my other podcast is Eric Corum. Um, the, he's the, uh, one of the administrators over at William and Mary, um, just his idea of what a high performance system looks like, um, and kind of how they go about creating that and, you know, working it into their everyday model. I, l- I love the Robert Sapolsky recommendation. That's uh, I've been waiting for more of those like out there recommendations to go and try and reach and like branch out the podcast. Oh, and I was like, well, I can just tell you another strength coach's name, but I'm like, I'm sure you know all the strength. No, coaches yeah, no, <laughs> that, that's awesome. That, that's a, that's the first, that's what I'm like. That's what I envisioned the question being. And now everything's like strength, coach, which is awesome. Like obviously strength coach are awesome, but trying to get people like, the under, and I think it's so like you talk about the importance of stress, like, and a lot of the books that have been recommended are the same thing, but how can you apply stuff that is the underpinning of strength and get conditioning? Maybe it's like the culture, maybe it's a, like just human piece into the world of strength conditioning and Robert Sobolski, although not a strength coach, like talks about stress all the time, which is the most important thing in strength conditioning is force performance. All we do. <laughs> yeah. We, just, we, man- we manage and give out stress. All right. So next question what's kind of next for you? Like what's your, maybe it's a five year goal, maybe it's a one year goal, but like what's kind of your next big step like that you want to take? Uh, I mean, next big one would, I mean, <laughs> get back to campus first, uh, hopefully resume uh, training with my athletes. But, uh, I mean, beyond that, I'll finish up grad school next year, um, in May and then start to look at a full-time position beyond there. And, you know, hopefully step into that next chapter of my life of, you know, done with school, at least for the time being, and then, you know, into a full-time job working with athletes and hopefully being somewhere where I can spend a couple of years and really build up that camaraderie and rapport. And, you know, that's the only struggle with being a intern or a GA is you only have that short window to be with your athletes. And, you know, I'm looking forward to being somewhere where I can have that extended period of time and see my program grow over time with an athlete through four years rather than just through one or two. And are you looking long-term and maybe you don't know yet, but uh, like you, do you want to be Olympic side? Do you want to be ahead of everything? Do you want to work with a specific team? Do you want to stay with wrestling? Like do you have a goal there? I will say since being with wrestling, I've kind of gone down that rabbit hole of being obsessed with it. And like, just cause like I said, there's not much out there content wise on wrestling. Um, and so I've become heavily interested in that, but ultimately I kind of want to just, I want to be somewhere in the right environment with the people I work with. Um, not so much. I, you know, I, I could care less, you know, what teams I have, what program I'm at. Like, as long as, you know, I want to be somewhere where I'm compensated well enough to support my lifestyle, um, support a family, but then ultimately just with people that I enjoy being around every day. Um, cause you know, you can put any logo on a shirt. Um, <clears throat> but if there's one thing I've learned is that, you know, you work with good people, it makes what you do a lot more enjoyable. It makes you a lot more passionate about it. And kind of how we go back to with training, the whole enjoyment factor. Um, I think it applies to us as coaches and just making sure you're going into an environment where it's growth minded, it's family oriented, and you kind of feel like you're going into something that is going to make you feel included, uh, is going to make you feel valued, and ultimately somewhere where you see yourself growing, not just becoming stagnant. And, and so what school that is, what sport that is, couldn't tell you. Um, I know long-term way down the road, I would love to either get back into like a high school environment or private sector setting. Um, that's, you know, 30 plus years down the road. But for now, I definitely, I love the environment of college athletics and all the opportunities it's brought me. I love that. Uh, the points um, I read the daily stoic today and it was 
talking about how we trade things of high value for things of low value all the time. And you, like you mentioned, like making sure you're in a position where the value you provide is compensated for stuff that is high value to you. So the right people, the right culture and mm-hmm. stuff that a lot doesn't allow you to burn out right away. You know? So like if you take this high level, maybe a high level division one job that doesn't have a very good culture and has a high turnover rate, although you're getting compensated in money, the correct way. Maybe that's not the value that you're looking for. Yeah. There's just, there's money only offers you so much satisfaction. There's plenty of people you see that are, you know, famous, rich, but still suffer from, you know, depression, anxiety, all these things. And so it's like, you start to realize there's more to it than just, you know, the financial compensation, the monetary things, the material things. Um, you know, that's one of the things I love about NDSU is just relationships I have with all the guys I work with. Um, it's just second to none and just makes getting up in the morning and being there all day that much more enjoyable. And just when, you know, you have those personal relationships that kind of underpin everything you do, it makes it easier when you're critiquing stuff, when you're pitching ideas, um, just to feel like they care about you as a person, same as we do with our athletes. They care about you as a person before they care about you as a strength coach. Um, and kind of putting you first just makes you feel a lot more valued, a lot more, you know, part of what they're trying to create. For sure. Next question. What do you want your legacy to be when, when you're all done with this coaching, when you're all done with everything on this planet, like you're on your deathbed, what do you really want people to say? Like you left? I mean, more than anything, just that there was no doubt that I cared. Uh, I think, you know, and day we can debate methods, we can debate results, um, which road to take to Rome. But as long as there's not a doubt, you know, from my coworkers, family, friends, athletes, like there's not a doubt that I was passionate. I was invested. I think at the end of the day, if I'm remembered for that, everything in between is kind of, you know, pebbles and stones. I'm not too worried about it. I love it. And very last question of the podcast. And one of my favorites, you, you're, you're kind of billboard message for somebody that's, that's in a Valley. Maybe, maybe it's a GA right now that's struggling and has a lot of schoolwork where they have a lot of work, but they're struggling right now. They're not seeing the light. Like what's kind of your message to keep them going forward. Uh, this is actually something I picked up from a book I'm reading right now. It's the upside of stress uh, by Kelly McGonigal, but there's a part in it where they talk about how everybody has an Everest. And basically it was a, there was a student who was studying for an exams and was like freaking out, overloaded. And someone walked by, I was like just another cold, dark day on the side of Everest. And basically the thought process being like, if you're climbing Mount Everest, no one's enjoying the fact that they're like cold, miserable. There's snow in your face. 90% of the time it's, you know, well below zero. Um, but when you get to the top, you forget about all that. And you realize like, yeah, those moments sucked. Those days sucked, but it gave way to something much bigger and something much more rewarding. And so I feel like just remembering everyone has their Everest. There's those cold, dark days on the side of it, but don't forget what you're working towards and understand that that, that peak will be worth it. Yeah. That's awesome. The keep keeping the, the journey. Like the, it's all part of the journey to get to where you want to get to. Exactly. They did. Th- th- this is awesome. I took a ton of notes and this is, I think it was just an awesome conversation. I hope a lot of the young and just any strength coach can get a lot out of this and just be able to really dive deep into a lot of these things that we talked about. So thank you for being on. I appreciate you having me. It's uh never really saw myself in a position like this to be speaking, but I, you know, it's nice to have the opportunity and to at least get my thoughts and ideas out there and have them critiqued by those a lot smarter than me. It's just, uh, just the start in five years. We're going to be on these all the time. Oh man. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.